One of the most important things you must keep in mind is when two non-white people, two victims of white supremacy, come together and try to talk about the system of white supremacy, racism, there are two things that are going to be present. Anxiety and confusion. Now, understand something. The anxiety and the confusion was already there long before those two non-white people came together to talk. And because we have learned how to deal with white supremacy by white supremacists, our skills that we already have, inherently, we think we're coming to solve a problem, but inherently we are sabotaging it as soon as we come together. So it is important to understand that when you are observing two non-white people talking about white supremacy racism, anxiety and confusion are going to be present. Now, how do we deal with the anxiety? When dealing with the system of white supremacy, especially when it comes to eliminating it and replacing it with a system of justice, you must learn to get rid of your emotions, your feelings. It does not matter what feelings you have about white supremacy because any of the white people who instituted and created white supremacy were not in their feelings when they did it. So we cannot be in our feelings when we come to dismantle it. You must get rid of your feelings, your emotions. Calm down. Learn that the conversation is going to be disagreeable. It's going to be uncomfortable. Relax. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be disagreeable. But what you do not do, you do not lose your composure. Calm yourself down. Calm your breathing down. You'll know in the midst of the conversation when you're talking with a non-white person, pay attention to how they're breathing. You'll see that they're having a hard time controlling themselves. The other part is the confusion. The best way to deal with the confusion is to make clarity the, the point to focus on. Every word that is said must be said and must be said adequately. Slow down. Don't talk so fast. There's always a question to every word that is being used. Ask that question. You must slow the conversation down extremely. I mean, to the point to where that it's a crawl. Take your time. There is no reason to rush. I assure you, it is taking a great amount of time to get us in this predicament. There's nothing wrong with taking our time to get ourselves out of it. Slow down. 
do not try to talk over each other. Ask every question that needs to be asked. Now, because two non-white people are going to talk about the system of white supremacy, we must understand that regardless of what kind of non-white people are talking, there's going, it doesn't matter, the interrelationship of who is talking, as long as they're non-white, there's going to be some conflict. It, even, as I was saying, even in the interpersonal relationships, if a father and son is talking, or if a mother and son, a daughter and father, a daughter and a mother, if two brothers are talking, if two sisters are talking, if an older gentleman is talking to a younger gentleman, a, older, a woman is talking to a younger woman, it doesn't matter as it relates to the interpersonal relationship. If they are non-white, irrespective of their relationship, there's going to be some confusion. So please listen very carefully. The best way that we're going to try to minimize the confusion and also minimize the anxiety is getting out of our emotions, our feelings, and taking our time and listening to the words that are being said. Remember I said that words are a tool that are used to maintain confusion. And as a victim of white supremacy, it is a it is my duty to learn and pay attention to every word that is being used. Finally made it. Man, we finally on it. <laughs> forgive, forgive. You might hear my son. I'm dropping my son off, but we we, we on it popping right now, man. We ready to go. Oh, okay. Okay. So I just wanted to uh just want to extend a, a, an extreme uh thank you. And uh, I appreciate you uh just coming through to kind of talk and let's have a uh constructive dialogue on this podcast about uh white supremacy racism. And uh, coming from a perspective of a, as a non-white person, and um, I definitely believe and think that we, as non-white people, definitely need to come together and really talk about exactly what is going on, how it's happening, and what we can do and what we've been doing as good practices to kind of maintain and manage the mistreatment that's just happening and going on. So I uh, just appreciate that that, you know, you're going to take some time out to kind of talk with me and just kind of share some things, you know? Hey, well, my concept of white supremacy is, to me, it's a non-issue because it's since day one, we as a people have been <laughs> opposed, I mean, have been um, subjugated under white supremacy. <laughs> and... So it's not something that's new, 
But the concept that I have a problem with is, is that why we spend so much time worrying about that instead of working together and doing for self. Okay. I'll give you an example. City of Newark, New Jersey is about 60% black, 65% black, 15% Portuguese, and the rest white. The city of Newark, New Jersey has one black owned bank. The Portuguese community, which is only 15% of their population, it's called the ironbound section of Newark. The Portuguese community has five Portuguese banks. The Portuguese people own the businesses in the ironbound. They put their, the business people in the ironbound put their money in the Portuguese-owned banks. The businesses there, the meat, the Portuguese meat shop, butcher shop, buys hardware supplies from the Portuguese hardware store, who buys cakes and pies from the Portuguese bakery, who buys dresses from the Portuguese dress store. So the people that live around the Ironbound, for the most part, are Portuguese people. So the people that own the stores live in the Ironbound. So they take their money and put it in the Portuguese banks. The Portuguese banks lend the money to the Portuguese businesses so they can expand. The Portuguese banks lend money to the Hello. residents of the Ironbound so they can buy homes and buy cars. The people that live in the Ironbound and work in the Ironbound, I mean, live in the Ironbound, but work somewhere else, when they get paid, they bring their paycheck back to the Ironbound. So the ironbound basically is self-sufficient and Hello? the ironbound has zero percent. Come on. Get up here. Get up here. Yes, sir. We're back. Oh, okay. Okay. So we're going to start again. Yes, please. Take it from the top. Right where you <laughs> left off. <laughs> we had a nice little intro, but. Okay. Okay. Uh, in the context of white supremacy, that's what we're talking about. And uh, from your experience and from what you understand, and uh, please, you have, you have the floor. Oh, okay. First, let me begin saying that I'm a, you understand who I am. Okay. I'm a 66-year-old black male born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Went to an all-black elementary school in the black community. Went to all black middle school in the black community. Was wound up transferring to a Jewish high school. And my last two years were in a Jewish high school in Pittsburgh. I had a lot of experiences there that it being exposed to a white world. And it made me decide to go to a black university. So I'm a graduate of North Carolina A&T State University. I have my undergraduate degree in, in uh, history. I've worked in nonprofit organizations and I left there, Greensboro, North Carolina, came back to Pittsburgh, found myself working. My first professional job was working with the YMCA. I worked with them for a couple of years. And then amazingly, my next job was working with the Boy Scouts. Hmm. You can't get more all-American than working with the Boy Scouts. Oh, man. 
my job with the Boy Scouts was to develop Boy Scout troops and Cub Scout packs in the black community okay. in the city of Pittsburgh. Right. So I had to go out and try to recruit adults and kids and put together outdoor experiences for kids. So even though it was the Boy Scouts and, you know, they promote mom, you know, flag, the flag and rally around the flag and all of that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good ex- opportunity for black kids to get exposure, you know, outside of their communities to go camping, to go hiking, to get outside of the community. And it was also a, a vehicle to learn how to work together, you know, on projects with the parents, you know, to form Cub Scout packs and Boy Scout troops and things of that nature. So I worked with them for a while, for about three years. And then I started working with a group called Inroads, which was um, minority business students that are majoring in business and engineering. Okay. And they basically were uh, business and engineering students that would be aligned to corporations and had to have summer internships in corporations. They would talk to, they would get the cream of the crop of black youth and then expose them to corporations and tell them the corporate corporate was their saving grace for black folks in America. Well, as I studied and, and was involved with them for like two years, I realized that that entrepreneurship was more important for people to elevate. When you look at how other groups of people elevated themselves, you know, majority of people in different groups, ethnic groups, they elevated themselves from within their community. Uh, Carter G. Woodson said in the miseducation of the Negro in the 1930s, the more the Negro is educated by the white man, the more the Negro hates himself. The problem comes is, is that you know, the talented amongst numbers of us, members of us, we wind up thinking that our neighborhood isn't good enough for us. And so we move to somebody else's neighborhood. So we take our talents, we take our monies, we take our intellect and put it into somebody else's neighborhood. What does that leave our neighborhood with people that are depressed and lower educated <laughs> and the such? <laughs> I believe one of the worst things that happened to black folks in the 60s right. and 70s, one thing was the movie, The Jeffersons. You might ask me, why The Jeffersons? What's the theme song to The hmm. Jeffersons? And keep going. Moving on up. I finally got my piece of pie. Uh, to the Lower East Side. You know, with the uh, pie up yep. in the sky. So what they basically are saying in that song, I now that program has probably been off the air over 20 years, and you know, still know that catchy phrase song. That song was, as soon as we get paid, we leave our neighborhood. And success is moving into a white neighborhood and taking our skills and talents there. Hmm. Not developing our own neighborhood within not you know looking out for each other wow. taking our money and beating it I, city of newark new jersey okay. i happened to live there right. for a while but let me before i go into that right. i got i felt that i was perpetuating okay. a myth to tell college students 
that corporate America would be the saving grace for black folks. And I realized that no, it was really entrepreneurship to me was the saving grace in creating jobs within our community and doing for self, hiring for self, working for self, teaching for self, improving self. And then therefore we create that proverbial village that we, you know, they say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, but first you have to have the village. You know, you can't have a desolate area and try to ha- raise healthy people. Mm. You know, so I decided that instead of me perpetuating that myth, okay. that if I'm so smart, then maybe I should look at starting my own business, working for myself. So then I did a lot of introspection. I started to, you know, think about myself in terms of what do I really like doing? What do, gives me joy and pleasure when I do it? Because I realized when I was in high school, the courses I liked the most, I got the best grades in. And why was that? Is because that course gave me joy. And so I didn't mind reading more about that particular subject. I didn't mind, you know, concentrating on that subject because it gave me joy and pleasure. And I was paid by getting a good grade in that. So then I started looking introspectively what things in my life that it gives me joy that I could study and I could basically get my grind on and stuff and develop that into a career and enjoy doing it. And it hit me photography. I love taking pictures. I enjoyed it. I thought I was pretty good at it. And so what happened was is that, well, let me do a little bit of prefacing. As I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, I decided that I wanted to go to Rio de Janeiro for carnival. And I talked a friend of mine to going with me. And in 1981, we went to Rio for the carnival. But before we went to the carnival, I bought a camera, the best camera I could afford. And I started taking pictures. And I started taking pictures all over the place in Pittsburgh to practice, to go. So when I got to Brazil for carnival, I'd have some great pictures. Well, I went to Rio, was down there. And I was in Rio, I went to the favelas. And the favelas is basically the slums. And it's up in the mountains. And Rio is interesting. The, the richer you are, the closer you live to the ocean. That's right. So the poorer you are, you live further and further from the beach and up into the mountains. But the people in the favelas had the better, better views. So if you think in the Pittsburgh area, Mount Washington has the better views than, say, people that live like in the lower. So uh, favelas, okay, and so the understanding is that the people who live up in the favelas are poor, and the farther you away from the beach, you're poor. The the richer you are, uh, you live closer to the beach. And what's funny because those who are poor living up in the mountains actually have the better view. Right. Go ahead. Right. And so what happened was, and in Rio de Janeiro, the interesting thing about it is, is that all the beaches are public. So you had super rich people and super poor people 
encountering each other on a day-to-day basis at the beach. So no matter how much money you had or how little money you had, you're, all of them were at the same beaches. So what I noticed was just as a, an observer of life, it was the first time that I saw people that were dirt poor, but really happy. You know, you could see, you know, they would hug each other, they'd laugh, they were joking and all. And it was, you know, you see people that look like me and all, but they're, of course, speaking Portuguese, but, you know, there wasn't the uh, animosity to each other, the, you know, like you have in the Black communities here. You know, right. there was love going on and the people were sharing what they had with each other. And so, I realized they were, ha- they were happy. They were happy in their poverty. Well, they were. They accepted it as their reality, but they found joy th- in spite of it. You, you, know, know, I, like, you know, I like I like what you're saying right there. And please, we're gonna hold that as of, a. It's sort of like a, religion. We look at religion, and the religion that we've gotten from the slave master okay. is, is that servants obey your master. Work hard, your reward will come when you get to heaven. But you ain't getting nothing here on earth but pain and suffering. But your joy will be in heaven when you can sit at the feet of the Lord. Oh, pie in the sky, huh? Yeah, and that basically is um, Stalin, not Stalin, Lenin said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And it's something that just. is 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 Stalin a white man? Lenin, Lenin. This is Lenin was the founder of communism in Russia. Yes, he was white. Okay. All right. You know, Stalin was the um, president of Russia during World War II. Lenin was the one that started the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in like the 1916, 1917, like before World War I. But that's another story for another day. (laughs) But at any rate... What I realized, like I said, is that people were finding happiness. And I realized at that moment that instead of pursuing money, that I was going to pursue happiness Hmm. and take my time pursuing happiness. Because at the end of the day, you know, what is the most, what's the more important, money or being happy? Are you, you, and I have a a question. Have uh you, have you reached happiness? Have I reached happiness? Yes. Yeah. Years ago, I um when I stopped working, when I started, I was put it this way. I decided let me go back and track again. When I was 31 years old, I decided to when I came back from Rio, I decided that if this is as good as life is, you know, I got to make a change because, you know, I'm you know, it, it's not, I wasn't happy. I had material wealth, you know, and I was moving forward. You know, I was married at the time. I had, we had two houses and an apartment building. We had two cars. And so we were, you know, middle-class black folks, but I wasn't, I realized I had material stuff, but I wasn't happy. And so once I came back from Rio and started looking around, I was making at that time 35,000 a year. Okay. I wound up applying to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. 
and for fashion photography because I wanted to be into fashion photography. I realized in my career working with inroads and developing kids with that career guidance that if you're going to pursue a career, the best way to pursue a career is where that career is the most prevalent. So in other words, if I wanted to be a coal miner, then I should go to college in West Virginia where the coal mines are. It's no need in going to LA and study coal mining when there's no coal mines in Los Angeles. So when I decided that photography is what I wanted to do, then I realized that, well, you know, there aren't any world-class photographers in Pittsburgh. So if I'm going to the seat of photography where it's happening the most is in New York. So it was imperative for me to go to New York to learn photography. What's the best way to introduce yourself to a city is to go to school and learn and use the school as your intro to a particular city. And so I found FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, had the number one fashion design school in the country. They had a fashion photography department. And so I applied to there. They had over 600 students applied to go to school there and they only accepted 60 students. I had to do a portfolio for them and had to go to New York and interview. Mm. And I was lucky that I was selected as one of the 60 students to a photography course there. When you were selected, that, when you were selected <clears throat> to be uh -huh. one of the 60 out of the 600, was uh -huh. the, the people that were doing the selection, were they white people? All white. Okay. Yeah, I was the only black. It was primarily, you know, that school was primarily all white. Okay. You know, because once again, black folks, when you think about it, we've always been told that you can't make money in the arts. You need to get a, a real job, you know, so, you know, something that's going to give you income, something that's stable, something that's reliable. Well, art is something that's not reliable and all, but if it gives you joy, and I perceived at that time to pursue one's joy. Then I said, I wasn't chasing money anymore. I was chasing happiness. Hmm. So once I got accepted to FIT, I moved to New York and all, and I was broke. I knew I had three months worth of money and then I'd be totally broke. So I knew I had to be very diligent and I had to learn this career as quick, this career as quick as possible. So while my other fellow classmates were out partying on the weekend, I was in the dark room on campus studying photography. And now, I'd and stay. How many, how, many, how, how many black photographers were with you during this time? Students? Yeah, students. Like at that time, out of our class was the class that I was with. It was like 30 because they had two classes and 30 each class. And right. out of 30, three were black. But one of the three was um, from uh, Angola. He was from Africa. His mother was African. His father was Portuguese. And so he was, you know, in, and they had a lot of international students. You know, they had people from like Japan and Europe and, you know, all different parts of the United States and all. So it was an international class, but it only really had three black folks there. So mm -hmm. me and the forget where he was from but you know it was just the three of us now uh to uh kind of bring it together uh i have a question to ask you of uh -huh. all the things that you have accomplished and all the things that you have in your possession right now as we're speaking mm -hmm. has any of it not been 
allowed or given to you by a white person and or white people either directly or indirectly not given to me I, you mean i had to take it no 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 i'll say it again is there anything that you've accomplished your possession that was mm-hmm. not given to you or allowed by a white person and or white people directly or indirectly oh most everything i have is because of my own due diligence you know i don't find that people are giving away too much of anything okay so given or allowed so what i'm asking is as you relate to your possessions or what you've accomplished was that given or allowed by white people and or a white person no um I asked you how'd you get into your school and you said you were picked out of 60 out of a uh, 600 and I asked you who did this election so that would be it's right so that would mean that so that would mean allowed so that would be part of the allowed part so either either a white person has either given it to you or they have allowed you well when you're in a you're in a country that has a a power elite and all you know basically you have to my concept was is that you learn from the powers that be and then you redefine what you learned and you take it back to your people you know so but to learn i felt that you know like i could have went to art institute here in pittsburgh and studied photography part-time and worked my job during the day but i wanted to make a total commitment to it and learn from the best so that's why I had to go to New York. And when then you say, I, when you say learn from the best, where was that other black photographers that you were? No, learning from? let me let me explain how that worked. What happened was, is that as I was getting ready to tell Tay about I was making thirty five thousand dollars a year. I quit my job and was making didn't it saved enough money what I perceived that I would last for three months. So. At the end of three months, I went to the dean of the department, which was a white guy, and I told him that, look, you know, I've been studying this craft and I'm, you know, working this and I need a job. And I had committed myself when I left Pittsburgh. The only thing I would only area I was going to work in is photography or I was going to starve to death. I wasn't going to be a substitute teacher. I wasn't going to be a cab driver. I had to learn photography and I just, and I gave, basically gave myself three months to learn something about photography that would afford me the opportunity to make a living. So I told him, they said, he said, well, we've been watching you and we've been we've monitoring your commitment to the craft. And so they said, well, there's a photographer nearby that's looking for an assistant. And so I said, um, he said, I'll refer you. So he referred me to the photographer and for a job. And this, and was, a white, this was a white guy who referred you to another yeah, white guy. Yeah, it was a white dean of the department and it was a white photographer that he sent me to. And mm. so I meet this white guy and he's at um, 142 West 26th Street, Midtown Manhattan. That's where his studio was. And so I wound up, you know, normally... When people hire assistants and all, they're young guys in college, like 18, 19 years old. Well, here I was at 30 years old with a college degree 
and black. He had never had a black assistant before. He never had a college graduate before. And he never had a 30 year old before. And he said, look, I don't want to insult you, but I'm only paying four dollars an hour. And I told him, I'll take it. And he's like, what? You'll take four dollars an hour. And I said, yeah. Hmm. And so he said, OK, if you want to accept it, I'll pay you that. And I jumped up and down to myself because here I was, had a job in three months. I'm in New York City where I wanted to be. I got a job in photography, even though it was at the lowest level. But I was able to accomplish that in three months, totally make a career switch, new city, do that and everything and get that. The problem was when they would, you know, I'd go to work with him. He had other assistants there, other white kids were working there. And then when it was time for him, you know, and he needed some film and he needed somebody to go to the lab and pick up the film or go to the cheap Chinese restaurant and pick up Chinese food or something. He'd send me. Mm. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I'm the only black person here. I got a college degree. And I said, you know, here, they sending me to the store to do the grunt work. And at first I got insulted and I started thinking about it. And I said, no, wait a minute. When I really think about it, out of everybody who works in the studio, I'm the one that has the least photography background. I'm the most ignorant one in photography of everybody that's at the studio. And there was about four people working there. So I said, I guess I really should be the one to go to the store and do the grunt work and go be the gopher, go for this and go for that. And I said, well, the way I'm going to do this is that, hey, I'll buckle down and I'll become the smartest one in the room and I'll learn this as quick as possible. And so once again, at the end of the day, when people were going home, I was in that photographer's dark room studying what he did, practicing what I'd seen done during the day and all and working and still working on my craft. Now I was working with him part time and going to school full time. Well, at the end of the semester, I had learned so much that my salary went from four dollars an hour to when I was working to, with him to one hundred and twenty five dollars a day in a month and a half because I became more valuable to him. So he paid me more money. Hmm. So, you, became more, you became more valuable to the white photographers. He paid you more. Right. And he right. paid me more. But I was seeing photography from the white eyes and how white people conducted their business, how he set his studio up, how he dealt with his clients, and how he made his money. You know, And he and I became personal friends. And so what happened was is that he hold wound on, hold on, Hold on one second. That was kind of fast. You said you became personal friends. So you became yes. friends with this white person. Yes. Even though initially, even though initially your interaction with them, he paid you subpar when he first met you. Right. And he had you gophering and, and doing right. all even though you were the one with the degree and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And so so because and, he didn't do it. Uh, he didn't on. do it. Let me just get some let me just get some clarity. So out okay. of that experience. By the time the semester had got done, you had felt that there was a garnered experience that warrant for you to have a friendship with him. Right. Because what I realized was, is that he wasn't being prejudiced toward me or, I mean, racist to me. He it was, Well, because of the fact is that as I became smarter and more valuable, 
he voluntarily paid me more money. I didn't have to march and picket or none of those things. He just started paying me more money because he realized I had more value. And so he started me. I have a question. I have a question. Uh -huh. Did they say that he was paying you $4? He yes. also had the capacity to pay you $125 that day, correct? Yes. So even though he paid you $4 and he had the capacity to give you that $125, by yes. the time you went through a month and a half and you got to that $125, It never changed. The constant had never changed. If he was able no. to give you 125 a day, the day, the first day that you showed up, but he gave you $4 an hour out of that. Because, because I didn't have any worth to him. I didn't come to the table. I didn't have any skills that were of value to him. But so as he, I so you, so you, you as a human being, you as a human being is not enough. Well, you have to realize, once again, we live in a capitalistic society, not a communism society. And so okay. therefore, in a capitalist society, for someone to get wealthy, somebody has to take the lower end of the stick. You have to basically abuse somebody else for you to make money. That's okay, now, hold, hold, capitalistic let's, mentality. Okay, let's get, let's, get real, let's get real finite. Let's just slow down All real right. quick. When you're saying somebody, who are you talking about specifically? No, I'm talking, when I say somebody, I'm talking about in, ca in a capitalistic system. Okay. In, in a, a capitalistic, capitalistic system, who exactly is the ones that are being wealthy? No, when I'm saying the owner of a, a business. Okay, so who are the majority 98% owners of the businesses, 99.9% .9 owners of the businesses in this capitalistic system right now. Oh, it's white people, no question. Okay, but so now, so okay, the capitalist, the capitalist, in the capitalist system that you said, I just want to get some clarity because we're talking okay. about, because uh, I, I, I appreciate your experience and what you're saying is extremely helpful. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be listening to this and and so I need to bring the the context of white supremacy in it, and so I, I don't want them. So so you're so yeah. So your experience, you're absolutely one hundred percent. And so when you're saying capitalistic society, you're talking about white people, and you're talking. And so majority of those who are not are going to be the non-white people. Well, it's like anything else, and I try to explain. And I'm not making any excuses or anything like that, you know, for white supremacy. You know, mm. because white supremacy fuels itself. You know, mm. they hire their own first. You know, they educate their own. They hire their own. They reward their own first. Mm. And being black and in America, you know, you grow up into that society and you understand that's how it is. So the way you fight that is do for self. And you put your people first. You put your community first. You know, and... Uh me how one fights white supremacy is to do for self okay i i appreciate it. i have a uh, a question so, so therefore let me explain so therefore okay. for me to learn photography at a higher level i had to go to the white man to learn it but once i learned what he knows then i could take it back to my own community and i can do for self mm. in my own community and that's what I wound up doing was, was that my next thing was 
is that he wound up getting the um, contract to do the annual report for, at that time, Bell Telephone. Mm. And so he asked me, and this is I'm saying, I've only worked to him now for two months part-time. He asked me, would I travel with him as his only assistant and do this contract, work with the contract with Bell Telephone to do, do the photography for their annual report. And we would be on the road back and forth to New York for like a month and a half. And so therefore I couldn't go to, call, to classes and I'd have to drop out of school. Well, I went back to the same and I said, well, let me think about this for a minute. So then I went back to the same dean of the photography department and I told him, this is an old white guy. I said, look, you know, I've been offered a chance to intern with this photographer and travel all over the United States with him as his assistant doing this annual report for Bell Telephone. And I said, but to do that, I'd have to drop out of school. And then the old white guy looked at me and he said, you know, he said, this is a two year program here at FIT in photography. He said, the most you could hope to gather at the end of the two years is to get a job as a assistant to a professional photographer. He said, you were able to do that with just three months of schooling. He said, it sounds to me like you're afraid of success. Oh, so the old white guy said, you're afraid of success. He said, it seems to me that you must be afraid of success. That's what he told me. And I looked into the eye and said, thank you very much. And I walked out of his office and I never went back to that school again. Hmm. Because he was absolutely right. In three months, I had learned enough to get a job as a persistent to a professional photographer, why in the world would I stay and go to school for two years? Try to, to get what I already had, you know, so then I wound up traveling with that photographer all over the country and stuff and learning, you know, higher level photography. So then when we got back, you know, I started, you know, photographers don't work every day. And at the level that the photographer I was at working, you'd be glad to work three, four times a month. So the rest of the month, you're preparing, you're, you're doing, you know, you prepare your studio, you're working on, you know, promoting yourself and all to try to get the next job. But you're not working every day. So what happened is that what I started doing was freelance assisting to other photographers. So I would work for, and this is when I start meeting black photographers who are professional photographers in New York. I started working for black photographers, white photographers. I mean, some of every nationality of photographers in every discipline, because there's a lot of dif dif different disciplines in photography. The photographer I initially started working with was a people illustration photographer. But then, you know, there were fashion photographers, there's food photographers, there's still life photographers. So they come with a lot of different uh, concepts and all disciplines within photography. So I'm learning all of these other approaches, working with these other photographers as their assistant. The first photographer that I worked with, he was on the main one. He was sort of my base, and I would always go back and work with him first. But I found that I was learning so much that he started asking me, well, how did this photographer light, you know, handle a lighting problem? And how kind of equipment did that photographer have? And he started, you know, peppering me for information. And then I realized that now. 
he was year, getting he's getting information off of you. Yeah, and now I realize in a year I had gained enough knowledge that the person that initially offered me a job was was uh, using me as a information source. That and so, what extre- that is extremely peculiar and very interesting. Yeah, I, I, want, so, I want you to finish. So, I want you to finish because we're gonna sum, we're gonna bring it all back together because. I like, I, please continue. That's very interesting. But then what you did was, and this is what I was saying, you know, every once in a while there are people, white folks out there with good hearts. Time out. He, time out. Hold on. I have a question now. Every time you say, every time you say something about white people, I'm, I, we're going to have to slow it down. When you say good hearts, what do you mean exactly when you say, when you say the term good heart, a white person has a good heart, what do you mean exactly? In other words, they're human beings. Because a lot of white folks aren't human beings. But this particular guy, he was a human being. And what he did was is that he was teaching on Tuesdays. He would teach at um, photography at a college. And so he would be out of the studio every Tuesday. So what he did was he said, look, you can use the studio for your own personal use every Tuesday for free. And I'm like, what? Now, he had, like I said, this is a real upscale, expensive studio. He said, I could use it for free. And so next thing I know, Tuesday was my day to shine. And I started getting my own clients and my own work. And I would schedule them for Tuesdays at his photography studio. So now, all of a sudden, I'm doing work for Ebony Magazine, Essence Magazine, Black Elegance. You know, black hair care, black men, black males. When it was called uh, Ebony Man, when it was out, I was doing it all uh, every Tuesday. I'm shooting at the studio, at his studio. And it was saving me hundreds and thousands of dollars because I didn't have to have a studio. I didn't have to rent a studio. And that's why I said we were friends because he looked out for me when he didn't have to. But he was just as one human being to another and appreciating my talent. I appreciated his. And so we would, you know, he let me work in his studio to the point that I was, you know, making money and he wasn't charging me and he knew I was making money. Wow. You know, so, but on the same token, you know, it's like still I'm in an environment at that time. Here's an example. I had an interview with Condé Nast and that's a major magazine and stuff. They do like Bazaar and. Vogue and different magazines. And I had a, a interview with their art director. And it took me six months to get this interview with this guy. Hmm. And so when I finally get the interview with this guy, I'm calling him every week trying to get him to see my portfolio. So I get clean as I could get, you know, and I go to this meeting. I had a leather portfolio case. My pictures were tight. I knew I was sharp. I walk into the office in Upper Man, Upper East Side in Manhattan, and the first thing the reception came out of the receptionist's mouth is, the messenger's entrance is around the back. Right. And I'm like, what? And she said, yeah, the messenger's entrance is around the back. And I said, do I look like a messenger? And I pulled my business card and slapped it on her um, <laughs> desk. <laughs> you know? and, and I said, I have an appointment with so-and-so. And she's oh, like, so then she calls, you know, the guy and the guy says, yes, send him in. 
Well, he didn't realize that I was a black American and stuff. You know, my name didn't sound like that. He didn't know who, what I was. So right. when he walks out and he looks at me and, you know, and so we shake hands and he gave me a loose, one of those loose handshakes, you know, a little like a wimp noodle or something. Oh. So next thing you know, I'm like looking at this guy sort of, you know, saying my radar, gator sort of came up and all. And I said, oh, OK. Oh. I'm not talking about what it, what's the word you use? What was that word? What'd you say? Gator. What's the gator? I don't understand that word. Huh? You never heard that expression? Uh, I've heard that expression, but I just want to understand how you're using it. Well, what happened was is that this guy was obviously effeminate and was gay. He was gay. Yeah. And so what happened was it was a white guy and it was a gay white guy. It was a gay, and- it was a gay white guy. Okay art director that I was, you know, had for six months been calling, trying to get a job to show, I mean, the chance to show my portfolio. So here when I finally meet him and he shakes my hand, you know, he has this, you know, and I'm saying, oh, okay, this is a gay guy, right? Mm. I So, uh, you know, showed him my portfolio and he looks at, he looks at a picture, then picks his head up and looks at me, turns the page, looks at another image, picks his head up and looks at me. The third time he did this, I said, excuse me, is there something wrong? And he said to me, "Um, are these your photographs? And I said, what? He said, yeah, are these your photographs? So I stand up, reach over his desk, get my portfolio. He said, what's wrong? I said, do you ask everyone that comes to your office, is there every photographer, do you question whether or not he's showing him his work? And I said, the only way I could prove to you these are my images is that every image you see a reflection of me taking the picture. I said, I said, goodbye and took my folder and turned and walked out the door. Hmm. The reason I did that was is because one, I sort of prefaced that people hire people that are the most like them and people hire people that they get along with. And, you know, I didn't fit in his category. I didn't fit in his perception of what he would hire a photographer for. He couldn't see me as a photographer. He couldn't see me as the person that took the photos that he was looking at his desk. So there was no chance he was going to hire me. All he was going to do is just, you know, go through the motions. And so I refused to be played like that. So I just grabbed my portfolio and left with my dignity Hmm. out the door. And I got a lot of that in New York at the level that I was at because there were very few black photographers at that level. So when I'm trying to get work in magazine work, you know, they were like, it was really difficult to get work because they weren't used to working with black people. They were used to seeing black people, you know, clean tables, you know, at the restaurants they ate at. They were used to clean the offices and things of that nature. But this is 1983, 84. And for receptionists to tell me the messenger's entrance is around the back and I'm as clean as brand new money. And you can't see the difference between me and a a sweaty bicycle messenger. (laughs) You know, the only thing a black male. Now, from the experiences that you have with white people in this in this context. um, Have you well. From your experience, is there any evidence 
that white people collectively are going to come together on their own and stop treating people who are not white as the ways that you were experiencing and being mistreated? Does it seem like white people are going to come together and come to senses on their own and be like, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to stop doing this. Hey, hey, hey everybody, pay attention. We're going to come oh. together. We're not going to do that. And we're going to stop doing it. We're not going to do that. Is From the experience well, of times that you've had, is there any well, evidence to show you? Huh? It's something I always say. Power only concedes to the more powerful. Mm. Power does not concede power to people that are not as powerful as they are. Wow. Jews in this country are less than 10% of the population. And they're like 5% of the population. Okay, hold on, hold on one second. I need some, I need some Jews. When you say the word Jews, are you talking about yeah. Jews? Are you talking about white people or non-white people? I'm talking about white Jewish people. Okay, because so Jewish is a reflection of a, a religious connotation. Yes, it's a religion. Okay, so in, in context of, of white supremacy, so in context of white supremacy, the racial classification would be a white person. Right, but so, Jews band together and work together, and so consequently they become formidable because they, you know, are become more powerful because they share their wealth. They go Jews first. Are you saying they, we just we just established that Jews are really white people? So are you saying white people band together and and bring their money together so they can make themselves powerful? That's what Jews did. Jews were also discriminated against. But what Jewish people did was they didn't march and picket. What they did was if the, if Caucasians wouldn't allow them into their country club, the Jews built their own country clubs. Question. Is a Caucasian and a Jew, are they both white? Yes. Okay, so there is no differentiation among white people, especially when you're talking about Jews, correct? Well, no, when Jews, but see, there's a difference. See, Jewish so that's people... Why, that's why I'm asking you. What? That's why right. I originally asked you, what is a Jew then? Right. See, to me, to me, a Jewish person is, is a, um, it's a religious connotation to me it's not a nationality okay uh, i'm not at okay so uh, uh racial classification is not based upon nationality i'm speaking about racially so racially jews are either white or non-white no you can have black jews you can have white jews okay so okay thank you so the Jews, Jews that you, so the Jews that you're talking about are white people. White Jews, yes, white Jews. Okay, because I, I you know what, one thing that has happened um, that becomes very confusing is that in the system of white supremacy, white people have been able to develop multiple terms and labels to hide the fact in plain sight that they're really white. See, I've never seen, I've never you ever met a white person. They say, man, I'm not white. I'm Italian. I'm, 
British and I'm um mixed. They'll say even a white person will say, man, I'm mixed. I'll, I'm half Irish and Italian and Polish and things of that nature. And what they'll do is they'll start naming nationalities and places that are still located in Europe. And when we know that people who are white come from Europe, Middle East, or North Africa. So this connotation that you're giving, that you're saying about, you're still talking about white people, but you're saying white people with multiple different names. Right. But the three, what happens though is, from my experiences, what happens is, is that, one second. Yeah, what happens is, is that white people have initially like, they banded themselves like when they came over here to this country, you had uh, immigrants, you had Italian neighborhoods, you had Polish neighborhoods, you know, you had um, Irish neighborhoods and all of that stuff. And so then you had black neighborhoods. But as things evolve, white people transcended nationality mm. and started being supportive of other white people. So they were, the line, they were white they were white the whole entire time. Right. But even though they, even though they even though they had expressed different countries of different names. Yeah with nationalities like you had Polish communities, Irish communities. But you they know. were really but they, ultimately they were still white communities. Well as as things evolved and these white people started massing together hmm. what basically happened is then it just became white and so their nationality didn't matter as much as their whiteness did with wow. the exception of jews oh hold on one second you said a, you said a word i need you to really uh help me out you said whiteness what when you say whiteness what do you mean when you say the word whiteness people of caucasian skin so you know, you have Italian Caucasians, you have uh, uh, Irish Caucasians, but they're all Caucasians. And what happened is in this country, you know, nationality. So in other words, where your grandparents were from started having less significance. And what became more important was ethnicity. Huh. Oh, so, what's, the, what's the word you say? What was that word? Ethnicity. Ethnicity. And being white, your ethnicity becomes more important, or your race, because race basically is only used here in this country as a means to uh, segregate people. You're of this race. You're you, you're of this race. You get these benefits. You're of that race. You get these other benefits. You don't get these things. So if you're a white, you can drink at this water fountain. If you're black, you drink at this other water fountain. Uh, the the racial classification is not used anywhere else on the planet except in America. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's not used, but I'm saying they're not as committed to it. Like when I went to Brazil, it was the first time I, you know, when I think of Brazil, I think of mulatto people, you know, sort of mixed and colored, sort of almond skin and all that. But when I really got to Brazil. You realize you got blonde hair, white blonde Brazilians, and you got purple black Brazilians. You got some of everybody in that culture, but they only promote Brazil 
when you only when you think of Brazil, you only see the you know the mulattoes. Okay. You know, and once you start doing international travel and stuff like that, you start realizing that in different countries, you know, like in Brazil, it wasn't it wasn't um, a problem with me being black. But when I lived in New York, you know, I mean, one, I remember one day I was running late for the um, train to go back to New Jersey. And I'm sort of lightly jogging down 7th Avenue, sort of near Madison Square Garden. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't want to miss the train. I had my camera bag under my arm, sort of like a football. And I had about $10,000 worth of camera equipment in this bag. This old white woman saw me running down the sidewalk. She grabs her purse and says, oh, and jumps out of the way like she's terrified. Mm. And then I stopped running because I said, so all somebody would have had to yell, well, stop thief. Then I would have been identified as a thief because I'm a black man running with a bag under his arm. And then I could have been easily shot. Mm. You know, so I definitely do. I have a, uh, I have a, I have a question to ask you. Of all your times of your experience and interaction with white people, have you ever been with a white person, male or female? Nope. Nope. The time in my life, once again, as I told you, I went to a all black community, lived in all black community, and then I was in high school. I went to a Jewish high school, but then I went to a black university. Mm-hmm. So I would have probably might have experimented or something would have been in my, you know, late teens, early 20s. But at that time, I was at North Carolina A&T with all these beautiful black women. A quarter mile away from the school was Bennett College, which was like another 700 black women. It was a black women's school. And I was basically just loving my blackness. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what a white woman, that would have been. You know, what what would I, you know, there was no benefit to me. I didn't necessarily think that they were more beautiful than my sisters. When you so were doing I, that, uh, when you were up in New York and you were doing that, uh, working with that white photographer, was there mm-hmm. any white woman that did like approach you and step to you or? All the time. All the time. Really? Can you share, can you share like one experience where a white woman tried to get with you, but you like kind of had to turn it down or? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I can tell you even close when I worked at Inroads. Inroads. Okay. In career development for minority college students okay. and stuff. I had to go to um, the different college campuses and visit and meet with my students, you know, to make sure that they were on point academically. If they needed tutoring or something, I would, you know, pay for the tutor and things of that nature. And I meet with the deans of their departments to make sure that the student was doing well. And if they needed any support, I would provide them with that support. One of my colleagues or the person was a white woman who was my immediate supervisor, which I had problems having a white woman and she was a white Jewish woman. She was my supervisor. And here I am working with a black agency, but they had a white woman there. So I had problems with that. But, you know, I said, hey, I'd suck it in and just do my job. Well, we went up to Penn State together, she and I, and we had our meetings and things of that nature. And then after our meetings and stuff, we had dinner together and then we had separate hotel rooms. So as I was going to my room and she was going to hers, she said, well, she said, I got a bottle of rum. Why don't you stop by and have a drink before you go to bed? And I said, "Okay, cool. I'm just naive and stuff. I'm saying, all right, cool. 
So then I go to her room, you know, like 20 minutes later, I go knock on the door to her room. Here she laying on her bed with lingerie on, you know? No. I'm like, you know, no, I'm, you know. Hey, did you drink some rum or did you, you turned around and left quick? What did you do? On left because <laughs> is that, and this was my concern. My concern was is that, and I realized in reading and things of this nature, white mm-hmm. women they perceive that every black man wants them, Ooh. you know, and given an opportunity, a black man will take it, you know. You know, and I want to so- I, I I say something to what you're saying. You're absolutely emphatically correct in the system of white supremacy the most dangerous person in the system of white supremacy is the racist white woman of course because they sold out out black people with voting for trump this last election (laughs) the white woman she uh, voted against her she voted against her best interest by voting for trump you know my thing is, is that if I'm a, if I consider myself to be a smart black man, why would I fall for a sucker move like that? You know, and I'm not. Uh, never. I want you to bring. I want you to uh, bring some things full circle. Why mm-hmm. would it be for a non-white person not to engage in sexual interaction with a white person? Well, people can do what they want to do, but this particular situation was she assumed that because she was white, that I would was lusting after her, and she would, and she would, you know, say, "Okay, here you can get this," and all. And my thing was, no, nah, just because you're white, I'm not interested. No, the uh, the thing that you said, uh, you answered. You said people will do what they want to do. So you don't feel that it is inappropriate for a non-white person to have sexual interaction with a white person, even though you also practiced it yourself. Well, I don't perceive that everyone should follow my path in life or my, you know, and I don't sit in the judgment seat. You know, people do what they want to do. And, you know, I just can't do it. You know, I have, and this is funny, I have a cousin that married a white woman, and he lived um, Woodbridge, Virginia. And I went to his house one time, and he married a Mennonite. And so all the pictures in in his house are barnyard scenes like ducks and and chickens. For people people who are listening, Mennonite is like another version of Amish type, like Amish. Yeah, Amish type person, yeah. So he married this woman. And in his house, it does not smell like a black person's house. It doesn't look like a black person's house. The artwork is all midnight and all of this. The only reason why you know a black person's there when you have see their family portrait, you see his black face up in there. Wow. And I, how could you live like this? How could you just mm. drop your whole culture and immerse yourself into this culture and not feel funny? You know, because let, let me ask, let me ask, let me ask what you're saying. Let me ask it within the context of white supremacy or the existence of racism. Would it be appropriate while racism is in existence, while the capitalistic system that you talked about, majority of most white people, 
would it be appropriate for someone who is non-white to have sexual interaction with a white person? Well, like I said before, you know, people will do what they want to do. That's their personal life. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So I have, I have, I have, a, I have a range of questions, and just is yes or no, and we're gonna rock with it. Mm -hmm. Do you okay? In the system of white supremacy, are white people in a position of power? Yes. Okay. If you are not white, are you subject to that power? Um, you yes are. If you are not white, are you subject to white people who are in that power? No. So if you're not white, but white people are in a position of power, you're yeah. not subject. You're not subject to those white people who are in power. Only if you want to be. See, that's a. See, you asked me to answer for myself, and my answer for myself, I say no. The average person would probably say yes. Okay, but so see, can you tell me? Can you tell? Can you give me a place? Can you give me a, a situation or example to where if white people are in power, how you are not subject to white people having power? Well, I moved my studio from Friendship Area of Pittsburgh. Friendship Area, for people that don't know, is a middle class white community. And I moved my studio two years ago to the black community. And the reason I did, and everybody's asking, well, why would you do that? And I did that because I said, to me, I perceive myself to be the best photographer in this city. And if I said, why is it that the black community, their business community is marginalized? And so I wanted to be a situation, if you wanted to utilize my services, you had to come to the black community to get it. And so that's why I intentionally moved to Homewood. So I've been in Homewood now for over two years. Okay. So therefore, my livelihood is not, white people do not control my livelihood in terms of whether or not I eat or not. I put all my eggs in black folks' as baskets. Yes, I do have about 30% of my client base is white. But Question. they're not to Question. the point that I'm not begging them for the jobs. They come to me because of the quality of product that I deliver. The tools that you're using, like the camera that you're using, is it, mm -hmm. is it manufactured by a Black-owned, Black-ran company? No, of course not. It's manufactured by Japanese companies. Okay, so in these Japanese companies, in these Japanese companies, there's banks and things of that nature. Are any of those banks owned and controlled by non-white people? Yeah, Japanese banks, Japanese are non-white. So uh, oh. yes, so Japanese are non-white, but the banks that they're using is the Japanese yen. All the all currency is based upon the American dollar, correct? Even though the American dollar is not the strongest, but the American dollar is the standard, right? It may be the standards in some places because you have the euro dollar that has significance, yen that has significance. Yes. You know, the, the baking, the baking, the baking practices that are used by central banks are they developed and created by they're, they're developed, yeah the european are white they're created by white people and yeah okay so the the manu so so the pieces or the manufacturing or the underpinnings as you reflect and you're talking about the business 
the building that you're moving to, the street that you're moving to, the guests, do you have heat coming to the uh, to your studio? Yes, of course. Do you, do you have water coming to your studio? Yes. Do you have electricity coming to your studio? Yes. Okay. Could you own your? Could you run your business if you didn't have heat, water, and electricity going through your uh, to your studio? No. Okay. All of those things are utility companies that are owned and controlled by white people. Yes. Okay. So, again, let's get, now let's went to the standards. We're going to come back. And from what you're saying, you are maybe on the surface level, you may seem like, and that's how it is with white supremacy. We'll have certain people like, nah, they're not really white people. They're Jewish. No, it's really Japanese people. But, but if you really kind of peel back the layer, you'll see that it'll line back up. And you even said it. It's, it's, it's really white people. Now, let's get back to the, to, the, to the questioning at hand. Being non-white, being subject to white people. Yes. Now, I have a question here. Is it appropriate for a boss to have sex with his employee? I would think not. Okay. If you were a general, would it be appropriate for you to have sex with one of your soldiers? I would think not. If you were a prison guard, would it be appropriate for you to have sex with a prisoner? I would think not. If it was, if you were a teacher, would it be appropriate for you to have sex with your student? Nope. Okay. So all of these relationships are based upon a power dynamic, which someone who is in a position of power and someone who is subject to that position having a sexual interaction is completely inappropriate. My question now is, if white people are in power because of white supremacy and non-white people are subject to that power, the power dynamic creates a situation to where if a white person and a, a non-white person has sex with each other, it is completely inappropriate. How is that not equal to the understanding of the power relationships that we just talked about, that you agreed that, you know what, I think not. That is completely inappropriate. So I'm asking, is it inappropriate for a white person, regardless of whether you don't do it, I understand that you don't do it, but any person who is not white to have a sexual interaction with a white person with the context of white supremacy being in existence? If you put it into those standards, no. Because it's like it's like during mm -hmm. slavery times, mm -hmm. you know, the slave master did not have romantic relationships with the female enslaved women. Mm -hmm. He they were considered to be his property, so he had sex with them anytime he wanted to. People talk about Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings. Wow. You know, you know, and he they said how he took her to Europe with him and they acted as a couple in Europe. Well, I don't think they had a love affair. I think you know she was beholding to him because she was his property. And so he could use her any way he felt, you know, his desire, and you didn't have a choice. And that's why reason was that you know i have a choice and i choose not to and 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 prudent of this conversation and speaking about white supremacy 
I absolutely 100% believe, now this is my belief, that mm-hmm. if the energy that is put among white people and non-white people to be sexual with each other, if it was focused on getting rid of racism, white supremacy, it would be gone overnight <laughs> because the urge, sexual urge, is one of the strongest urges that we have as human beings, the urge to have sex. And I do believe that if we were able to focus on getting rid of the issue at hand, the problem at hand, that the, 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 over, the overarching situation of the context would allow it to, you know what I'm saying, would not be there. So I don't have problem, I don't have an issue with white people and non-white people having sexual interaction while white supremacy is in existence. If we can focus on getting rid of that first, instead of jumping in the bed, let's get rid of this first, then we can have all the sexual interaction we, can, we want. Why? Because you wouldn't be getting taken advantage of. The context in which we're having this sexual interaction is no longer happening. But, it, but as soon as a white person wants to have intercourse or sexual play with a non-white person, they are taking advantage of them. They are doing something that's very extremely inappropriate. And well, that's sort of, that's Donald Trump's mentality with women. He perceives it, it's his right to have it, you know? Well, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I don't know Donald Trump personally, nor would I, nor would I, nor do I get into the fashion of personally indicting uh, any white person as it relates to what they can and can't do. I, knew, know, I do know that they're white, and I do know that white supremacy is in existence, and I do know because they are white and white supremacy is in existence, their actions, conscious and unconsciously, will to be to mistreat non-white people. Now, as it relates to the mistreatment of other white people, that definitely is going to happen, and that, that happens. But in the context of power and where I'm at, I personally, seeing that I'm not white, I'm definitely, su- I'm definitely subject to the power of people who are in that position. And it, it is white people. Absolutely. But there, there's a concept is this, is that white people are anti-abortion clinics, but they're pro-death sentence. <laughs> You know, it's a big problem with white people to me is that they're afraid of the browning of America. Hmm. And the more, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I lived for a short time in Crafton, which is primarily a white section of the city. And I would see all of these grandpa type white guys with the cap caps on and looking like it's the standard looking racist would be. And then they jump out of their pickup truck and here they got a little black kid, a little mulatto kid, like seven, eight years old coming out of their pickup truck. And it was obvious that their daughter was messing with a black kid. Okay. I saw a lot of that in Crafton. And then I was talking to some other people and we like they say, there's a lot of that in Clareton. There's a lot of that in New Kensington where races of um, black and white people and basically low income black and white people, when they're together in the community, they're having the tendency to mate and to produce kids. 
And so it's the browning of America that is causing white racism to sprout its head now with this whole Trump era, the era of Trump. Mm. Uh, I, I would, I, I would, I would ask you if that's why people- that's why they're not concerned about Eastern Europeans. You never once heard Trump talk about the Russian mob and their influences here in this country, you know, and all of that stuff. But he'll talk about some stupid stuff from Mexico and brown people coming in this country. But, you know, it's okay for white people to come with whatever negative baggage they come with. It's cool as long as they're white. You know, you know, there, there, is, a, there, there is a concept or there is a kind of a, uh, an idea that non-white people have that they're about that browning of America. And we, we somehow, some way kind of associated it with white people as it relates to skin color, right? And so we believe or there's, there, we, we think that if all the white people are no more, they have no more pale skin and everybody is half and half or mulatto, as you're putting it, that white supremacy would not be here no more. Now, I, 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 I'm a little confused about that. I'm people fear why they came with the KKK. Do you realize 10 years after the, the, the enslaved Africans were freed after the Civil War, poor black folks and poor white people were at the same level financially. And black economics was great, was rising quicker than white people's. And that was the whole concept of the KKK coming to yeah, the, the reconstruction. But the, yeah. but the, but the, the, the question, the question, the question and issue that, 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 uh, that I'm, that I'm trying to bring about is, is that even if, and this is what this is what is deep. Even if all the white people disappear, like they said, I know there was a study said in twenty fifty, there's not going to be no more white people. Everyone's going to be brown. But uh, what I'm trying to say is because the white system of white supremacy and being white has nothing to do with skin tone. That there's there are people who are right now classified as white who are in position and set up to be in positions of power that have dark skin. And so this browning situation, for some reason, non-white people think that white supremacy is going to go away because there's not going to be no more blonde hair, blue eyed people. And, and what I'm trying to kind of express and show is that the concept of white and being white is one thing is constantly changing. Remember, 100 years ago, and this is something I want, 100 years ago, when it came to the Irish and Italians, like you were talking about, they were not considered white. And right. they came with a religion of Catholicism. Right. So white people had talked bad about Irish people, talked right. bad about Italians, Eastern Europeans, and even talked about their religion, Catholicism. And it was, right. and it was, it was, it was nasty. I mean, they did, they did a lot of nasty things. There's only been one Catholic president and they shot him. That was John Kennedy. There's never been right. another Catholic president ever since then. So, mm-hmm. as it relates, so 100 years ago, they were already doing that. Now, guess what has happened? Italians are white, Irish is white, and the Catholic religion is part of white people. Now, look at what's happening right now. We have Mexicans, Arabs, and we have the religion of Islam. This same sentiment that white people were doing with Irish, Italians, and Catholicism, 
They're doing the same thing right now with Mexicans known as Hispanics and Arabs with Islam. Now, I'm going to let you know something. In the classification of being white, people from the Middle East and people who descend from Europe, i.e. Spain and Portugal, which would be the which would be the descendants of Hispanics, they are classified as white right now. They are white. Arab right. are white. And what is happening now, because we understand the brown eating situation, they have already filled the ranks with brown people. They already had it set up so that when it comes time, and this is how they do the reverse. Guess what they'll do? They'll automatically, outwardly, like you say in Trump, they'll say, man, I can't stand Mexicans. I can't stand Arabs. And forget this Islam religion, right? And what they'll do is they'll push against it so hard that everybody around them will say, man, listen, white people, you need to stop that. Don't treat Mexicans like that. You know what? Don't treat, don't treat Arabs like that. You know that religion? Don't do that. That's a religion. Don't talk about that. And guess what the white person will do? You say, you know what? You're right. I'll stop. And guess what I'll even do? I'll do even something better. I'll make them a part of me. And guess what winds up happening? Non-white people will say, man, look at what we did to white people. We made them, we made them accept and stop uh, tr mistreating Mexicans and mistreating Islam, people who are Muslim, and mistreating Arabs. And so much so, we taught the white man, we made the white man accept them and make them white. And then we're going to high-five each other as if we thought like we did something when the entire time white people... Racist white people were already planning on accepting and filling their ranks with people who were already dark skinned. But the issue would have been that none of us would have been with it. But now they have created a condition that if Trump would turn around, if the alt-right or the extreme right would automatically, all of a sudden, magnificently turn around and say, you know what, we're going to accept these people, everyone who's fighting against them, who's pushing against them, We'll even look at it and be like, you know what? That's great. White people are now, they're, they're expanding now. You know what? They're not even being white no more. Why? Because they taught us to think and look at the skin tone, the thing that's happening on the skin, looking at the physical characteristics. We think being white has something to do with the physical characteristics, having pale skin. When the truth and the reality is being white has nothing to do with having pale skin. It has everything to do with a qualification and very specific standards that they constantly are changing. Oh, this browning of America means nothing because they already have in their ranks a bunch of brown people who are right now white right now. They're already waiting. And I, and I know this may sound crazy, but if you just look at history, they did the same thing with Irish, Italians, Eastern Europeans, and Catholicism 100 years ago. They're, yeah. doing, they're doing the same thing with Mexicans, Arabs, and Islam. I assure you, they are not stupid. One thing that I, one thing that I, I, I don't get into doing is I don't call white people stupid. I know they're not stupid. There's not, they are not ignorant because they know exactly what they're doing. I have never met a white person who was dumb or stupid. I have met white people who act dumb, who act stupid, but they are doing that to deceive me.
I no. know that 100%. Now, now I'm with dumb white people now. I can't follow that. Listen, I, I, listen, let me explain something. It Could it be that the white people who were dumb, that you saw were dumb, could they have been fooling you? Is there a chance that the white people, that you said, man, I met some dumb white people, is there a chance that they could have been fooling you? Nope. Not okay. as dumb as they were. <laughs> okay, let, let me, look, this, is, this, is, this is an old saying my mother used to tell me. She says, a white, not a white man, she says, a guy, someone who is smart can play dumb anytime. But True, but this is my let me finish. But someone who is dumb can never play smart, no how matter how hard they try. Now I now I'm gonna ask you, or I'm gonna say, white people, especially racist white people, are extremely in uh smart. They know exactly how to play dumb. They are not stupid. Trump is not stupid. He is not stupid. He knows how to play dumb. And the thing is, is we think and we look at it and say, man, he's dumb and stupid. When actuality, there's nothing dumb and stupid about anything that they're doing. Everything that they do is very calculated, very specific. Nobody, nobody is just walking around, bumping into shit and doing this and saying, oh, man, I, I didn't know I was going to tweet that. Yo, man, you know, I, I, I just no, 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 no. To play a fool is to catch a fool. And they are doing that day in and day out. I do not give the moniker of dumb or stupid to any white person that is walking this planet. Not one white person in this planet is unconscious or does not know about racism. That is over the age of 16. Every single white person who is walking this planet that is over the age of 16, know exactly what racism is. They know exactly who is white and who is not white. Regardless of all the multiple uh, labels, Jews, whatever, they know who that, is white and who is not white. Let me explain. Because what happens is what you're saying is two different things. Just because you know that you're white doesn't mean that you're intelligent. And intelligence is not necessarily geared to races, to, to our race. White people don't have a monopoly. I didn't, say, I didn't say intelligence. I said smart. I didn't well, use the word intelligence. I, I look at smart and intelligent as being one of the same or very similar. And okay. so, saying is similar, is being similar, the same or being similar is close to. Personally, I'm not that impressed with white people's intellect. I'm really not. I think a lot of the deck is stacked in their favor for them to benefit. But on a one-on-one -on -one situation that I've been dealing with white people, I haven't. <laughs> you know what? I agree. I agree with you on that one. Uh, I, I'm a firm, I'm a firm, understanding believer that collectively, white people are the smartest people on the planet. But it's the individual. It's what happens when you get them individually. It's a different story. But collectively, totally. collectively, according to well, the evidence, white people are the smartest people on the planet. But it's the individual interaction. That becomes a different story. Absolutely. <laughs> when I was in New York, I met a Jewish guy that had a fold a folding company. Wait a minute. What, you, about a, you met a black Jewish guy? No, no. This is a white guy. He's a Jewish. Okay. Oh, and he you, you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to use that moniker because you, 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 you get Chinese Jews. So a white guy. So you met a white guy. 
Well, he was Jewish. Then this is sort of critical to the conversation. And okay. he had a folding company. And what a folding company does is that fabric is is rolled is manufactured, and when it's the manufacturing process is finished, it's in, it's placed on rolls, and you yeah. have big rolls of fabric. Right. But when but what happens is is that when it gets to stores like Joanne Fabrics and stores like that, the fabric is folded. So he had a company that all they did was fold fabric. Mm. Okay. Mm. He had about 30 women working for him. And I had occasion to meet this guy. And he told me he was a social worker. And his father told him, when you're finished trying to save the world, I'll set you up in business. And so when he had his kids and stuff and decided that he needed to make more money, his father set him up in a folding factory. And all he did was sit in his office, air-conditioned office, and eat donuts while all these women were there folding fabric. Mm. It just gave him a business. And I'm looking at him in terms of just privilege, white privilege and stuff. That and nobody gave me nothing in life, you know. I had to claw, scratch, you know, and and try to figure it out and everything myself. But on a one-on-one -on -one basis, he was not a smart person, not at all, <laughs> you know. But here he got a company, and he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year folding fabric, something as basic as that. That is that is when you said privilege, you know. Uh, as a as a victim of white supremacy, the word privilege is something that I stay away from using. And instead of you saying privilege, I say I use power in its place because that is exactly what you're describing. The ability to not have or need the wherewithal to still command a large amounts of money. That is part of the power of being white, classified as white. That is being in the system of white supremacy where you do not need, you do not need a top tier education. It is said, it's shown that every single white person who is born is already born with 83% of everything they'll need to be successful in life. 83%, you, as soon as that white baby is born, they are automatically already have as it relates to institutionalized systems and support of white people, they have 83% of everything they will need for them to be successful in life. All they need is to have an idea and to show up. They don't even have to stay and they don't even have to show up on time. All they have to do is wake up and walk outside. And, sure, that, I, and, I that know that. Is, and that is what the system of white supremacy is. That is... That is, in essence, in form and fashion, what we're dealing with. When a person who is not white, when they are born, particularly black folk, they are actually, they are actually in debt worth three generations. As soon as that black baby is born, they are already with three generations worth of debt. <laughs> How, this baby didn't even, we didn't even show up, didn't even do nothing yet. And they already have debt associated with them. They already have debt that's accounted with them. There's a problem. That's a big problem. And that is why, and that is why I'm totally debt free. I have no credit card debt. I have no mortgage debt. I have no car debt. Mm. You know, 
I own, I own, and I'm not saying this to brag, but I'm just trying to say in terms of what gives me freedom. Yeah. I own four houses paid for, mm. rented. You know, uh, I own an apartment building with 12 units that we're trying to develop right now. I own three cars. I have a 1995 Honda Del Sol. I have a 2003 Ford F10, Ford F-150 pickup truck. And I have a 2007 Hyundai Sonata. My tenants that rent from me, all of my tenants have better cars than I do. But all my cars are paid for. Their house is paid for. Me and my son, my son makes like $12 an hour. He works two jobs. He works 80 hours a week. He goes from one job to the next job. So therefore now his income is about $50,000. And so me and my son working together have amassed these properties and stuff. And as I tell my son, we, we can plant seeds, we can plant grass seed, and then in a month or two we can lay in the grass. Or we can plant fruit trees and cultivate these trees for two, three years. And then those trees will provide fruit. And then we can eat that fruit for generations. So what are we going to do? Plant grass or plant fruit trees? And my son said, we're planting fruit trees. And so that's what we're doing. You know, question. question. The things that you've amassed that you have, is any of it, will any of it that you own, Will any of it, because you own it, will cause white people or a white person not to mistreat you? No, I'm not saying no. What it is, but what it does do, what it does do, it causes them to respect me. Hmm? Because I get respect when I go to the bank, when they see my money in my account. I, you know... I get respect when they see me, you know, negotiate my finances and stuff like that. You know, they give me the respect then. But it was sort of like when I went to New York and all, I had a certain level of what I would stand for, what I wouldn't stand for. But because I was black, you know, the receptionist would tell me to go to the, um, the back where the messengers go. You know, they only saw color. So my whole thing is, is that I don't care what you see. I know who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I could hold myself appropriate to what I perceive. In fact, I had a conversation the other day with a good friend of mine. And this is a little off the point, but it's still the point. The point is, is that we were talking about, and I just happened to mention that every day I eat dinner at my dining room table. And I sit at my dining room table. I have a you know, China plates, I have glass glasses, and we sit at my table and we use forks and knives and we eat food. He says, you don't use paper plates? I said, no. I said, I use paper plates when I eat in the park, not in my house, mm-hmm. you know, because I have a self-perception of myself and I'm better than that, <laughs> you know? And if but it's about me... But as you said, as much as you as you gain, as much as you earn and things of that nature, it will not cause any white person not to mistreat you. 
Noel did it this way. I I don't allow it to be. I don't allow them to mistreat me. You can control a white person, and you can control a white person, and you control their actions. You can control their actions. Yes, I, I'll tell you an example. What? Five no. years. Hold on, let me tell you an example. Five years ago, I preface this conversation saying I'm 66 years old. Five years ago, I was 61 years old. I was at the corner of uh, Butler and 40th Street at that get-go to get gas. And I pull into the pump, and this white boy tries to pull in to get to the pump before me. And uh, and so I acquiesced and said, go ahead. You know, it ain't that important. I'm not in that big of a rush. You know, I'll let him go ahead. So he gets in front of me. It's so no problem. He's there. So then it hit me. If he moved up one foot, then I could get my gas, too. And we both could get gas at the same time. So I walked over and said, excuse me, can you pull your car up about another foot so I can get to the gas? He said, fuck you, nigga. I said, what? I said, what? And now this white boy, now I'm 5'9". This white boy is about 6'1". And he was about 23, 24 years old. And he said, fuck you, nigger. And I was like, what? I said, what did you say? He said, fuck you, nigger. And just went back to my car. And then I pulled up to his car and I realized I could make it to the pump and go ahead and pump my gas. So I'm pumping my gas. He went and paid for his gas and comes back to the pump. And then I walked back over to him while he's pumping his car gas. And he said, and I said to him, you know what? I said, the next time you see a nigga, I said, you should smack him. You know, he said, fuck you, nigga, again to me. And I sucker punched him, punching right in his face. And me and him started fighting. He grabbed my sleeve. Tell me, tell me. you 61-year-old. Yeah, 61-year-old. Fighting, fighting a 23-year-old white guy? Oh, my gosh. And I'm 5'9", and he's 6'1", six, 6'2", six, something like that. And I sucker punched him, hit him in his face, right? And next thing you know, he's, like, trying to throw me on the ground, right? And he grabs my sleeves to my sweater, and I realize he don't have me as my sweater. So I backed out the sweater, and I lit him up again. Bam, bam, bam. You know? Oh, and I said, who's this nigga now? And I'm jumping on my toes like Muhammad Ali, and he's leaning back against his car. I said, who's the nigga now? Who's the nigga now? And he's like, go on, man. Go on, man. Hmm. And then it hit me. I'm in Lawrenceville whipping this white boy's ass. And I said, I better go before <laughs> the police come. And so I got in my car. It drove off. And the white woman on the other pump on the other side, she said, he shouldn't have called you that, you know? Hmm. And whatever, you know, but I'm leaving, so I left. But like I said, you know, I'm not going to let them mistreat me. You know, I'm not. You know, I've lived too long, and I paid too many dues for me to coon and stuff and to kowtow, and you're either going to respect me or I'm going to do harm, man, you know, because I'm not having it. I'm not. do Do you think that that was constructive, what you did? I shouldn't have done it, <laughs> but I look back. So I'm gonna so 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 ask. I'm gonna ask again. Do you think that was constructive that you did what you did? At the moment, yes. I, at the moment, I didn't have a choice because my situation was: is this? He must have done this to other black people, or he wouldn't have tried it with me. 
And so other black folks probably just fluffed him off and said, oh, well, and just went on about his business. But I, my situation was, you know, I need to take this white boy to school. And so I think he probably is hesitant to say that to another black person again. You know, so on the immediate thing, you know, I probably, hindsight being 2020, I should have said, oh, you know, fuck you, <laughs> you know, just ignored him. You know, but at the moment, you know, hey, you know, I did what I thought I had to do. But you would I'm not do that. You would not do that again, would you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't definitively say no, I wouldn't. I really can't. Mm -hmm. It depends. It, it depends on how I feel and everything else and all, you know. I, I would. But on the same token, on the same token. Okay. I wouldn't let a black kid disrespect me like that. You know, on the real side, you know, if, you know, going to treat me disrespectful, you know, I wouldn't let a black kid do that. But definitely not. You would, fight, you, would you, you would, you would go fist the cuffs with a black kid if he said, fuck you, nigga? Probably not. Not, not if he did that. I would just, you know, what would I care? <laughs> you know? Right. No, he'd have to do more than that. You know, he got the black kid would have to touch me, you know. I see, but I, you know. I, I, I do, I do because there's gonna be people listening, you know, there's gonna be people listening. Um, uh, you brought up something that's that's very, very poignant, and uh, I asked you if it was constructive, and ultimately, you're saying no, it's it's not constructive. So, in our actions, what we do is either going to be constructive or non constructive. And so if you fighting this white guy, right, did it create a situation to where now no white people are going to use the N-word when they're talking to white to black folk? No. So what winds up happening is it doesn't become very constructive. Now, I'll tell you this much. If you that really, one, he'll decide he'll be slow to use it to another black person. That's for sure. But if but that doesn't but that doesn't mean and I and I and I pre. I understand exactly what you're saying, but ultimately what winds up happening is that it, it doesn't have any constructive effect because you know what I need, I have, I have son, you have a son. And so you don't want your son to experience that. But if there's a way to interact with white people in a constructive manner that will affect everybody, that would be much more constructive than doing something that is non-constructive, that is immediate based upon the emotions that we feel because I, I I listen it is a hard thing being a non-white person and having a white person say something like that I know I I understand that but it it does not mean that it's constructive it does not help it does not help the situation and I I definitely I'm not a proponent of being physical especially as being physical let me be specific if a white person uses the n word me personally when a white person uses the N-word, I act like I don't even know they even exist. Let me tell you why. There's been a situation. There's been a situation. Let me, let me, say, let me show you. There's been a situation where there was a, uh, I, was, uh, I was working at FedEx, and um, there, there weren't a lot of non-white people working at FedEx, especially in the department that I was at. And so there was this guy who was a contractor, the independent contractors, and he says, man, I need to get me a couple good N-words working for me, you know, working like that. And so I, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing my work, and 
I'm trying to organize some packages, get some stuff together on a computer. And uh, he said, he said that, man, I need to get me a couple of niggas like that working for me. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm typing away. I hear him. And then she, and then the, the lady that he's talking to, she kind of like, I, I, and she stops and she's kind of, and so she was like, so she just starts shaking her head. He's like, what? What's the matter? Oh, man, come on. You know, man, I, I just need to get a couple of niggas like that, man. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And as I'm typing away, I'm going, he, she's looking at me. Now they both stop. And they're both looking at, they're both looking at me to see if I'm going to say something, if I'm going to respond. I keep on working. I act like I didn't even hear what he said. I didn't even hear anything that he said. And then I just got up and I left. I just continued working. A couple of days later, as I'm walking, he sees me. I see him. I see him. I shake my head at him. He shakes his head. And he has the most weirdest look on his face. Two weeks later, the white lady that was there, she uh, she called me to the phone and said, you know, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, such and such, I said that N-word and stuff like that, man. He has not stopped talking about that. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? He is like, because he just thought you were going to say something or whatever. And like, I've never met anyone. And it started, what wound up happening, it started becoming something really like, well, and I, and I asked her, I, I, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, well, we were all together and we're sitting there and you were working and he said that he needed, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. No, no, you, no, when we were sitting such and such and he said like, you know, he said the N-word. I was like, I'm sorry, but when a white person would say something like that, I don't even hear what they're saying. So I don't even know what you're talking about. Now, what happened later on, and I wanted to believe what happened, I started talking, I wound up interacting. It started forcing them and that guy and his contract, the guys, to start trying to come talk with me. He's like, yo, there's something different about this guy. Man, what's going on over here? And it, what happened was, that my ability to control myself and ignore that happening completely changed the situation. They had expected and anticipated for me to say something, to do something and get physical, but it had a much more constructive effect because guess what wound up happening? He never said the N-word ever again because he had realized and saw that even him using the N-word did not even get the front. And so much so that it forced him or wanted to talk with me more and interact and see what's going on. So I, I say all that to say is that when it comes to white people saying the N-word, the least thing, the, the last thing that you, you were to do is the one thing that they least for you to expect to do. They expect you to respond or expect for you to agree with it. But what they do not expect you to do is completely ignore what they're saying. They don't expect you to do that. If a white person cognitively uses the N-word, they're saying that specifically to get an emotion, to get a situation, to get a feeling, to get a reaction out of you. They're not expecting for you not to give a reaction, especially during these times. Well, they'll get a reaction from me. That's for sure. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not <laughs> You're not going to just disrespect me and expect me not to say anything. I'm not the one, you know, and that's why 
That's why I work for myself. As I tell my woman, I'm damaged goods. I can't work for anybody else. <laughs> I've been working for myself since 1982. Yeah. And, uh, and living my life according to, you know, what I feel is the correct thing to do in, the, in terms of rightness and all of that stuff. So I'm not going to let anybody disrespect me. You know, I'm not going to wait till for no divine moment of karma or their right. personal enlightenment and all of that. You know, I'm going to speak out. And as I tell people, I'm going to speak out with a, on a justice whenever I see injustice. And that's just the nature of my beast and who I am. But I'm going to have to, you know, curtail this conversation. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. Son works 80 hours a week. Right. Thursday nights, I have to go over to his house and let his dog out. <laughs> you know, so right. that's what I got to do tonight. Was when I get off, finish talking to you, I got to go over to his house, let his dog out. And all. But we're working together as a team and stuff, and we have an agenda that we're trying to do. And okay. you know, and we're tr basically what we're trying to do is, is this is my concept is there's nothing wrong with gentrification as long mm -hmm. as black folks are involved in it, and mm -hmm. so. We're investing prop in money, property, and Homewood and renovating our properties and renting it to black folks. In fact, we even bought an apartment building in in um, Mount Oliver in a white neighborhood, you know, because shoot, we're going to take advantage. Of, they gentrify in our neighborhoods. I'll gentrify in their neighborhood. Oh, wow. You know? And so I have a four-unit apartment building in Mount Oliver, you know. We're putting that together also. You know, it's, it's a situation whereas, you know, if we don't get caught up in, in pettiness, if we don't get caught up in, in conspicuous consumption, you know, buying for other people's approval and all of those things, and we don't get caught up in debt, you know, trying to have the latest and greatest BS stuff, you know, for the sake of having it, you know, that's what I consider to be freedom. You know, it's when you don't, you know, like I don't have to get up tomorrow and go to somebody's job. You know, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, me and my son are going to Ikea to pick out a kitchen for one of our apartments, a house we just closed on this last week. We just closed the house on Tuesday. Good work. Congratulations. Robinson. Well, you, you're from Pittsburgh? Um, I'm originally from New York City. And, oh, uh, Pittsburgh now, but I've been here. I, I spent. I've been here since I was about thirteen, fourteen. Years oh, okay. Old. And then I had uh, had left uh, for college and did some traveling for college and stuff, and then uh, came back. Did you go to school? Um, I, I spent some time going to school uh, in Pittsburgh, and then I uh, went overseas. Oh, okay. I study some study abroad. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it was my joy talking to you, and I hope it was a value. It's going to be great. I'm going to put this up. There's going to be people listening. And uh, no, I, man, listen, uh, this was, I, I, I enjoyed it. I learned, a, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Even the concept, when two people sit down and talk, they should both leave much wiser. Or what was the point? Mm. <laughs> like, you talk about sports. I don't talk about, you know, things that yeah. I perceive just irrelevant you know but if we're going to spend this time conversing that i should leave wiser and you also and i appreciate the information that you shared with me and you know yeah. i give that some 
thought in terms of my response level, because that is sense of controlling of a person. If you could use that and you elicit a response from a person, that's control of that person. Come on. There we go. I'm glad, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't have to say it. You said it. That's absolutely correct. Of course. Of course. I, I mean, like I told you, I just haven't evolved to that point yet. You know, at, <laughs> 60, at 66 years old, good brother. Come on, man. <laughs> I just have you know, I still think I'm 35, you know, in terms of when I perceive myself and my self perception, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> I know that's Thank right. Situation and hey, stay strong and safe and stay focused. Appreciate and I appreciate what you're trying to do, and that's why I wanted to be a part of it. Man, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You gotta, each one has to teach one, you know, and. I always say I try to stay silent, but my ancestors won't let me. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. You take care and stay strong. Thank you once again for the opportunity. Thank you. Peace and blessing.